God, as we gather this morning, we want to declare that this is your church. Pennington Park belongs to you, and uh, Lord, we consider it a privilege to be part of, of your body. Lord, I pray for uh, your word uh, this morning, the word that was read, that it would go forth in power, that it would move uh, in our midst today. We believe that your word is useful for correcting, for rebuking, and training in righteousness. And so would you do just that with this text? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in junior high, uh, my uh, church's youth group had uh, an event uh, at the local roller skating venue. Yeah, this is in the uh, 1990s, just to date myself a little bit. Um, and when you got there, you had the option of either selecting roller skates or roller blades. And at this particular venue, the roller skates were, uh, were old and dusty and not very cool to wear. But if you knew how to rollerblade, you were like automatically in the cool group. And I, you know, growing up, didn't learn how to rollerblade for whatever reason. Uh, being in junior high, I wanted to impress my friends. And so I elected to go with the roller blades. And so, you know, roller skates, you just kind of tied the roller blades, you kind of had to snap in and, you know, all that. So I didn't know how to do that. I, little did I know was preparing me for installing a car seat much uh, several years down the road. But I, I put on those roller blades, get out there, and, you know, I'm going very slowly, you know, going with my friends, you know, the music's going, the lights are flashing, you know, this is the 1990s, right? And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I lose my balance, and I begin to fall backwards, and I put out my left arm, and all of my body weight um, it fell on my wrist. I was in a lot of pain. Long story short, I broke my wrist and had to wear a cast for six weeks. And I remember the doctor explaining uh, to me what had happened. He said, you've got a number of bones in your wrist and you broke one of those bones and you need to wear a cast for you know, six to eight weeks in order for that bone to heal. You need to kind of put this bone back into order. And yet wearing that, that cast, I remember it was red, it got smelly after a few weeks, you know, it, it radically impacted my life for those, for those six weeks. I mean, even the, the most mundane tasks uh, were impacted, like tying my shoes, buttoning my pants, showering. Like I had to think through all of these things just based on one bone being out of order. I share that with you because there was something very similar happening in these churches throughout Crete where Titus is pastoring. In fact, Paul in verse 5 uh, commands Titus, gives him the assignment. He says, Titus, I want you to put into order what remained. Now, put into order in the original language, though, this is where we get our English word orthopedic from. This word here, this phrase, it means to straighten out that which is broken. So you take a, a broken bone, for example, maybe a broken bone in the wrist, and you need to set that bone and put it back into order. Now, that process can be very painful. It can be very uh, inconvenient. But the danger, if you do not set a broken bone, is that it will fuse back together in an improper way. And that is exactly what was happening in these churches all throughout Crete, the largest island in the Mediterranean here is that there was such a high degree of brokenness throughout these churches that Paul is tasking Titus to be this spiritual orthopedic surgeon, if you will, and to set and put things back to order. Now, within our human body, we have over 206 bones. A little fun fact for you today. 
And those bones, to state the obvious, are not to be seen, right? We don't go around talking about the bones in our body on a regular basis. And yet as those bones work together with the muscles and the ligaments and the tendons, it, it allows the human body to, to operate properly, to, to function effectively, where you can you know, pick up a, a coffee mug in the morning and you don't have to think twice about, man, I hope my bones work. I hope the ligaments work in there. You can just, it's just a seamless process. And yet when you have just one bone that's broken, one bone that's out of place, it can cause major issues for the whole of the human body. Again, the example of my broken wrist. And yet the same is true in the body of Christ, the church. In fact, the the body is one of the most popular metaphors throughout the New Testament for uh, the church. And yet I would argue, as you think about that metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament, so much attention and so much focus is given to how that body should operate. So much attention is given to what the body should be doing and how it should be following the commands of Jesus, how it should be loving people, and rightfully so. But I don't think enough attention is given to uh, the inside of the human body, the the skeleton, if you will, the the structure of the body of Christ that kind of holds things together. And so this morning, we're just going to look at verse 5, and we're going to look at what I'm calling the skeleton of the church or the leadership structure that we find in uh, the local church, the human body. Now, the situation behind our text, uh, again, just to kind of remind us about the, the context of why Paul is writing this, Paul, after his first Roman imprisonment, He takes Titus and some other people, and they start traveling around. They start planting churches. They start strengthening already established churches, and they get to Crete. And we really don't know if Paul planted these churches in Crete or if they were already established. The reason why they could already have been established is because of Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 is known as the Pentecost kind of chapter where Peter is, is preaching and really the first sermon of the church. And all these people are getting saved. And there's a list of where these people are from. And, and there's a long list. People are from all kinds of different countries and speaking different tongues. And chapter 2, verse 11 of Acts says that there were actually individuals from Crete. And presumably, these individuals, they hear Peter's sermon, they get saved, and it's likely that they go back to Crete and they plant a church and they plant these other churches. Now, we don't know that for sure, But nevertheless, Paul uh, is with Titus. He leaves Titus in Crete, and he continues on to Rome. Now, as they're there in Crete, Paul quickly identifies that there are several areas of brokenness within these churches, things that need to be set and put back into order. Now, I want you to notice the first thing that Paul assigns Titus to put into order. Look at verse 5. He says, set into order what remains and to appoint elders in every town or every city. And so this is the first area. He wants them to establish a healthy leadership structure in the form of godly and competent and qualified elders. He wants them to address the skeleton of the church. So today we're going to walk through uh, uh, four components to a healthy leadership structure in the church And then next week, we're going to look at verses 6 through 9 at the kind of men that churches are to appoint, okay? So here's the first uh, component, and this is, again, this is going to revolve around the the leadership of the elders, 
But the elders' leadership is to be formational. It's to be formational. Now, since we're going to be talking a lot about elders over the next couple of weeks, uh, I don't just want to assume that everybody knows what an elder is uh, in terms of how the New Testament uses it. Uh, an elder is not a Christian who is old. It's not a Christian who is elderly. An elder is not uh, you know, some uh, very skilled businessman who can apply those business principles into the local church. Now, here's a, a definition of what an elder is uh, seen throughout the New Testament. The office of eldership is given in Scripture to provide spiritual nurture and protection for the church, that elders are to humbly shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ as under-shepherds through the faithful ministry of the Word and are to lead by godly example until the chief shepherd returns. Okay, They are under-shepherds. They are not the chief shepherd. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. And yet the elders have a responsibility to care for and shepherd the flock by knowing the members of that church, by feeding, by leading, and protecting them. Now, again, we'll see next week that elders must be godly because they are held to a high standard of accountability and have a high degree of influence. I think it's also important to note that throughout the New Testament, there are three different terms that are used interchangeably for the office of elder or the office of a pastor. Those words that we'll see, they're overseer, shepherd, and of course, elder. You're going to see those words used throughout the New Testament, but they're referring to the same office, which is an elder. And you actually see that in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul is speaking of the same group throughout this passage of an elder, and he uses two of those three terms interchangeably. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 20 as he's giving kind of his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. He uses, again, these two different terms interchangeably for the same group. Now, again, I don't want us to miss this because, again, some of us are thinking, man, why are we talking about the leadership of elders? That's not very practical. Again, I want to point out that, again, this church that Paul's writing to, as he's writing to Titus, they have several elements of brokenness throughout this body. And we're going to discover and learn what those are. But the first area that Paul is addressing has to do with the leadership of the elders. What a healthy leadership structure looks like in the local church. And that's really instructive for us. This is something that we cannot just assume will happen in every church or even in our church. This shows us that a local church of believers is defective if it lacks healthy leadership. That healthy leadership in the form of, of godly and qualified elders is necessary for a church to even be a church. And we see this pattern of the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament. He's planting churches and he's appointing elders. He's planting churches and he's appointing elders. You see this all throughout Acts. You see it specifically in Acts 14. Now, why does Paul do that? Why is this the first area that Paul addresses and, and assigns Titus to address? It's because the elders' leadership, their influence, and their authority is formational. In other words, it has the ability to form and shape that local body. And they are tasked to do this through the authority of God's word by shepherding in a healthy way. 
Uh, I love 1 Peter chapter 5. For, uh, Peter gives kind of the, the job description of an elder where he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's the job description of an elder. They are to shepherd the flock that is among them. And at Pennington Park Church, I know that the elders, we take this very seriously. We think about this uh, every elder meeting, what this looks like to shepherd. We've actually summarized uh, what it means to shepherd here at Pennington Park Church, uh, where we've identified four aspects of what it means to shepherd. For us, what we consider it means to shepherd is to know uh, the flock, to feed the flock, to lead the flock, and to protect the flock. And because I think this is so important, this is formational, I just want to briefly unpack each of those. Number one, elders are charged to know the flock. This is following the example of the Lord Jesus, who in John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As elders, we are to walk in that example, follow that example, because a good shepherd smells like the sheep. There isn't distance between the shepherds uh, and their flock. They spend time with the people that's in their charge. They have a deeper understanding of them. Or to use this phrase from, uh, from um, uh, this book called Shepherd Leader, it talks about knowing the spiritual shape of the flock that they are responsible for. So as elders, we don't just want to know your name. We don't just want to know where you work or the people in your family. We want to know what's going on in your life so we can walk alongside of you, so we can pray for you, so we know where you are spiritually. This is one of the reasons why formal membership is so important in a local church, so the elders know which sheep they are responsible to know at that kind of level. So elders are called to know the sheep. Secondly, elders are called to lead uh, the flock that they are in charge of. They are to manage God's household. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 4 and 5. They are to be overseer, overseers of uh, the flock of God. What this looks like is that elders must lead the, lead the church according to God's commands, for God's purposes, according to God's means. Let me tell you, th this is a humbling and a very challenging responsibility. I just speak for myself as one of the elders here. If you want to know what weighs on me on a daily basis, it's this task right here. It's leading Pennington Park Church. And yet one of the things that help kind of lessens that weight, kind of makes it lighter, is for me to be reminded that this isn't my church, that Pennington Park doesn't belong to me. This church actually belongs to God. And I know as elders, like we want to lead the flock that's here at Pennington Park Church by walking in step with God, not walking too far ahead or too far behind, but walking in step because he is the one who is in charge of uh, this church. That helps me just be reminded this isn't mine. This is uh, something that belongs to the Lord. And then thirdly, elders are charged to feed uh, the flock, that elders are responsible for the overall health of the church that they are responsible for, and obviously the primary means of doing so 
uh, is the Word of God, the, the other graces that are outlined in, uh, in God's Word. So that's why we preach and teach and even exhort from uh, the Bible. That's why I don't stand up here and tell you 25-minute long stories or I don't, I'm not very humorous from the pulpit. Now, that's a bad thing, but I want to feed you with God's Word. I want you to consume and, and feast upon what God has to say. And we, we do this both in our corporate settings as we're gathered together, but also privately and, and personally when we're meeting one-on-one or in smaller groups. Paul actually charges the elders to do this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's why we have a public reader every week who reads God's Word. That's not just something to, to fill time, but that's a command we see in the New Testament for the church to actually practice, to read the Scriptures. And he also says, to exhortation and uh, to teaching. Now, fourthly here, another way that we shepherd the flock is by protecting the sheep. We want to protect the flock both from internal danger and from external danger. This requires watchfulness, discernment, and a level of courage. In the way that we want to protect the flock, we want to refute false or unhealthy teaching. We want to correct, lovingly correct, divisive persons. And we also want to practice church discipline for Matthew 18. Again, this is following the example of Jesus, who in John 10 declares that he is the one who's protecting his sheep from thieves, from robbers, from strangers, and from wolves. So as under-shepherds, we follow his example. We, we saw this in 2 Peter just a few months ago, chapter 2 in particular. There are false teachers, even from among and within the church. And so as elders, we, we want to be on the lookout. We don't want to create a culture of suspicion by any means, but we want to be on the lookout for ideas, ideologies, even people who are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, who are a danger to our souls. So I just wanted to unpack those four aspects as you think about, okay, elders are called to shepherd, and through their shepherding, they're forming and shaping the body here. What does that look like practically? It's to know, feed, lead, and protect the flock. And one of the ways that we practically apply this uh, is through our shepherding model. If you remember here, our shepherding model is not new to you, but our shepherding model is an organized structure uh, to help us shepherd and care for the members at Pennington Park Church. And it, just to be succinct here, our shepherding model basically pairs each member with an elder. Whether you're in a small group or not, we want to make sure that you know who your elder is as that elder prays for you and is available and approachable. That's not a perfect model. Uh, it has areas of weakness. We're kind of constantly looking at it, trying to improve it. But our prayer and, and our desire is that you would be cared for. You would be encouraged, that you would actually follow Jesus better because of our shepherding efforts. In fact, we want to do this diligently because Hebrews 13, 17 uh, says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Man, that is a sobering verse. If you're an elder in the room, you're a pastor, man, that, that is a verse that should weigh on us in a healthy way, that we'll give an account before the Lord based on our shepherding efforts at Pennington Park Church. And we want to do that in a way that forms and shapes the people of God. And that's why Paul tasks Titus to do this for the, very, the first assignment uh, in these churches throughout Crete. Okay, so the elders' leadership is formational. But secondly, here's another component I think is helpful, is the elders' leadership is to be appointed. It's to be appointed. Verse 5, 
Paul says literally to do just that. He says to appoint elders in every town or every city. Now, the word appoint means to put in charge. This phrase carries the notion of authority, which is why eldership is one of the offices of authority in the local church. Now, a really helpful question to ask is, well, what kind of authority do elders have? They're put in charge, put in charge of what? What does that look like practically? And there are all kinds of, of models. That's why we have different denominations, different flavors within the capital C church. The one that we practice here at Pennington Park Church is a form of congregationalism where we are elder-led and congregationally governed, or what's also called as elder-led congregationalism, where the authority or the power does not reside in the senior pastor. It doesn't just reside in the elders. It doesn't reside in some uh, regional governing board, but the authority and the power is basically shared. It's shared between the members and the elders. The elders and the members work in synergy to be able to govern the church. Okay, now let me unpack that a little bit because within elder-led congregationalism, uh, there are three realities that we hold in tension. Okay, these are really, I think, important. Number one, we affirm that the full authority of that church lies in the local autonomous church and not outside of it. Okay, so the authority is here, not in some denomination, not in some governing board throughout the country or the region. But number two, we affirm that le the leadership responsibility is given to the elders, right? And that's because of what I just I took a few moments kind of unpacking. So the membership does not kind of lead and drive the church. The elders do. But then thirdly, we affirm that the governing authority is held among the members of the congregation, and that is lived out in our voting. That we every quarter, just about every quarter, we have a congregational or member meeting where we put forward different motions and different things that we're talking about for a vote that the ultimate authority actually resides in uh, the church. Now, in holding these three affirmations, it's also important to realize that there are different kinds of authority within the church. Not all authority is created equal. In fact, it's not even an either-or way of thinking about authority. It's not either the elders have authority or the congregation has authority. That's not how this is lived out practically. But we believe that the elders have a certain kind of authority, the congregation has a certain kind of authority, and of course, Jesus has a certain kind of authority. And those three realities blend together in, a, I think, a beautiful checks and balance type way to form a healthy leadership structure. Okay? Now, you might be wondering, if you're still tracking with me, you might be wondering, wait a second, the congregation has authority? I'm looking at verse 5, and it just talks about elders. The elders are the ones who are appointed with authority. Well, let me remind you, we want to form our doctrine and our understanding of different aspects of the Christian life with the whole of the Bible, not just one particular verse. So even though verse 5 is specifically talking about elders' authority, it does beg the question, well, how, does this, how is this lived out in the midst of the congregation? Let me point out just a couple of passages that speaks to the congregation having a different kind of authority than the elders. Uh, here's a, a very obvious one, uh, Matthew 18. 
verses 15 and 20, Jesus gives the local church, not the elders, the local church, final authority in the case of church discipline. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul tells uh, not the leaders, not the elders to remove the unrepentant sinner. He tells it to the church to do it. And then Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul treats the Galatian church there as being capable of removing him, even an apostle, if he's preaching or teaching a wrong gospel. Not the elders, but the congregation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Paul refers to a, a case of church discipline as having been decided by a majority, majority of the congregation there, not the elders, not uh, the leaders. There are other passages to point out, but in all this, I would argue that the gathered congregation possesses the final authority over the who and the what of the gospel. In other words, the congregation has the authority over the who, the membership, membership-related issues, and the what of the gospel or the, the doctrine in that particular church. Okay, let me give you some practical examples here. You're probably like, okay, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, in our church, the way we apply that, in our bylaws, we have stated what the membership uh, should vote on. So within the who of the gospel, they vote on new member, member candidates, members who are leaving, and church discipline issues. They also vote on new pastors, new elders, and new deacons. That's kind of the who of the gospel. The what of the gospel, again, it's, it's doctrine. Any doctrinal or theological changes that the elders would recommend the, the, the membership has to approve. We can't just shoe that in or kind of force that in. All right. Now, we also vote on uh, the annual budget as well, which we also think is really uh, important. Now, at the same time, the congregation, you do not vote on every decision that's made. Right? The, we're elder-led, so elders have a level of authority uh, to be able to make decisions. So we don't vote on how many donuts that we purchase on a yearly basis or how many mints that we purchase. Maybe we should, but that is given to the elders of the staff to be able to make those kinds of uh, decisions. Now, admittedly, this is more of a dance than an exact science, right? If you've been here for some time, you know that what what we like to do is we try to err on the side of over-communicating, making sure that we're providing different um, opportunities for the membership to interact with the the elders, which is why we do a quarterly Q&A session just to invite you to ask questions for us to be as approachable uh, as possible. Or, or even before we're making big, de- big decisions, we want congregational input. We, we want to be able to hear from you so that there's synergy, so there's harmony, so there's trust and cooperation between the members and uh, the elders. Now, all week I was thinking about, man, how do I illustrate this? Like, how do I, how, how does this kind of make sense? And I used an illustration in the first service, and I got uh, mixed reviews on this, and you'll know why. I'm going to use a basketball illustration here. Now, you know, I don't use sports analogies, right? They teach you in seminary. Don't do that. You're going you're to lose half your people. Um, but we're in, the, we're in the basketball state, right? The state of Indiana. So maybe you can follow this. Hopefully this is helpful. But within a basketball team, all right, at least when I, when I played in college, uh, when you're on offense, okay, you are trying to put the ball in the hoop, Okay, good so far? Okay. So within that offense, within that structure, there are different ways of trying to put the ball in the hoop. Those five players can either just kind of run around 
and have complete freedom, kind of move the ball around and try to get a good shot at the hoop, right? Or you can have what's called a set play. Now, a set play is kind of an organized way of running your offense, where the coach will call out a play. They'll say, yellow jacket, yellow jacket, okay? And the players are to echo that. And within that set play, now I know I'm losing some of you, just stay with me here, okay? Stay with me. Within that set play, those players have a specific spot where they must stand and a specific time in which they must pass the ball to their teammate. And then they go somewhere else. And they're to kind of to work this out in that set play where it's more organized. They've got a level of freedom within their arranged role, but they must run that set play. Now, in college, we did a little bit of both. We're kind of running around. There's a high degree of freedom. But whenever the coach yelled out that play, man, we, we ran it. Like we, we trusted our coach and we ran that play and we tried to run it as perfectly as possible because we knew that that coach was seeing things that we weren't seeing on the court, okay? Now, here's the analogy. Let me try to connect this for a moment. The coach is basically, the elders is basically the coach of the team. The players are the members of the congregation, all right? Now, the coach, the, the elders have authority. They, they lead, they call out the, the plays there, and there's a level of accountability there. Based on how the team does, that reflects on the coach. It reflects on the elders there. And at the same time, the coach wants to make sure that the players are working together in harmony and unity and making sure they're doing what they need uh, to do. So not sure if that helps. Maybe that helps a few of us, but let's just move on. All right, number three here. So the third component of healthy leadership is that it should be shared. It should be shared. This is um, explicitly stated in verse five here. Paul says to appoint elders, the plural there, in every town. All right, this is implying that there needs to be more than one. And this is really the consistent pattern throughout the New Testament. Uh, throughout the New Testament, you see that uh, the local body of believers is to be shepherded by a plurality of elders, a, a group, a team of God-ordained elders. We see this not only in 1 Peter 5, but we see this um, in James chapter 5, verse 14, where James says, call for the elders of the church to pray for those who are sick. We see this in Acts 14, verse 23. Paul and Barnabas were in Derbe and Lystra and Antioch, and they were appointing elders, plural, for them in every church. We see all throughout the book of Acts that elders were at the church in Jerusalem, Acts 11, Acts 15, Acts 21. We see this again and again throughout the New Testament. And there are so many benefits with this leadership structure where it's a plurality of elders. It's not just one guy. It's not just the senior pastor who's calling the shots. One of the most obvious benefits, one that I feel, is that the burden of leadership doesn't rest on one person. It's shared among that plurality of elders. But not only that, when each of those elders are exercising their individual giftedness, this actually aligns with the scripture's teaching that wisdom is found in a multitude of godly counselors. See that in Proverbs 11, 12, and 15. And within their combined counsel and wisdom and experience, there's a level of accountability there that's so rich and so helpful. It protects decisions that are made from being self-serving, or from serving just one single individual. 
And I would argue that this structure of plurality, this actually promotes mutual accountability, mutual care, and mutual uh, support among the elders. Now, I love that the elders that, that God has, has appointed at this church. We meet on a monthly basis to kind of talk about different things going on in our church, and then we meet another time a month in our accountability groups. We want to be able to hold each other accountable that we're living a life of godliness as we pursue what the Lord would have in our own lives. Okay, And then here's the fourth component. I'll close with this one is that the elders' leadership is limited. It is limited. Now, this isn't explicitly stated in verse 5. It's more implicit, but I think it's so important. It needs to be highlighted that our leadership is limits or has limits, sorry, meaning that even though these elders are godly, which we'll unpack next week, and they're competent, they are not the savior of the church. And I know I'm just stating the obvious there, but it needs to be stated. The church already has a savior and his name is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one who died for his people, for the flock. That Jesus gave himself up in order to save and redeem the people that belongs to him. And again, this is obvious, but we need to be careful not to put expectations on elders, on pastors that they are not made to carry. I'll speak for myself just for a moment. I know my own self, like, I have limitations. I have faults. I have weaknesses. I have sin in my own life that I'm trying to grow, that I'm trying to repent of. And yet there's one who does not. There's one named Jesus who is sinless, who is perfect, who is limitless, that Jesus has no shortage of wisdom, no shortage of grace, no shortage of patience and time and energy. Why? Because he is God. He is limitless. And unlike human elders, there's no expectation that's too weighty that Jesus cannot carry. That unlike human elders, Jesus possesses the authority and the power to bring about real life change that you and I desperately need. Look, more than anything, what I want as your pastor is for you to sit at the feet of Jesus and to allow him to minister to you in ways that only he can. More than anything, I want you to, ex I want you to experience his perfect love that can satisfy you. I want you to be cared for by his perfect comfort as our good shepherd. I want you to be strengthened by his endless grace. I want you to, to be moved by his kindness and his generosity. I want you to feel warmed by his faithfulness that he will never leave you and never forsake you. And I also want you to be challenged by his call for perfect or for, for continual obedience in your own life as you follow the good and perfect shepherd. Look, I and the other elders here, we have limits, and yet Jesus does not. And I also want to say that outside of being a husband and a father, this is the highest privilege of my life. I, I love doing that. I love being a pastor. I love being an elder. It's hard. It's messy. Uh, it is challenging in ways that I didn't even realize or, or anticipate, and yet it is incredibly rewarding. People ask me from time to time, what's it like being a pastor? I was like, well, it's nothing like I thought. <laughs> and number two, I say it's amazing because you get a front row seat at God's grace being at work in the messiness 
of his people. And it's unbelievable. And yet my role, the way I view my role at least, and the way that I preach, the way that I teach, is I want to point you on a regular basis to the perfect shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, that I can't fix anybody, but there is one who can, and his name is Jesus. And so church, I just want to encourage you and even challenge you to allow this reality just, to, just for you to marvel at the reality that Jesus, he's alive, that Jesus is reigning in heaven, Jesus rules over his church, and I want to challenge you to view Jesus as a good and loving and perfect shepherd. I don't know how you view Jesus on, on a regular basis, but I want to encourage you, don't view him as this anxiety-inducing CEO. That's not Jesus. Don't view G Jesus as this cosmic genie. Don't view him as an angry father. Don't view him as a cold judge. View Jesus as the loving, perfect, caring shepherd that he is. And he calls you to come to him and to lay your burdens before him, for he cares for you. Let's pray together. God, we do give you praise for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being our good and our perfect shepherd. Oh, Jesus, you know all of our needs. You know our burdens better than we know them ourselves. God, thank you that there is a constant invitation to come to you, to bring those burdens before you, knowing that you care for us. God, I pray, Lord, as we think about what healthy leadership looks in the church, I pray that you would just continue to protect our church here, protect our, our elders, our deacons, our leaders here, Lord, that you would give us a thirst and a hunger for godliness and for holiness. Lord, give us humility, and Lord, give us alignment and unity in Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.